0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and back in the flesh, but not in studio, but in my heart, the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man?
1: Hey, man. It was a very, it was a very heavily qualified uh, presence, I suppose, that I have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, I had Derek. We had uh, Dr. Miles on the podcast last week, and uh, I was like, what? like where do you think you rank as far as like handsomeness level (laughs) and he's like outside the top 10 and i'm like yeah that's a good enough caveat but um no i'm glad that you're back on this is a little bit different uh than something we've done um previously uh we were thinking about doing another uh science review but we figured we'd take it to the people let's ask the people what do you want to talk about? And they submitted a bunch of questions to your Instagram. So if you guys don't follow Austin or don't follow myself, you should do that on Instagram because we might answer your question directly right here in, you know, in memoriam on our podcast. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, we got a lot of questions. So instead of just, you know, flapping our jaws about stuff that people weren't asking, let's just get into it. All right. So question number one, could you provide a high level overview of your current training? And then I do like this qualifier at the end, but what does your accessory work look like? It's like, wait a minute.
1: like wait. High level or not high level?
0: <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. It's like, it's like, hold on. <laughs> All right. So yeah, you why don't you do yours first? And then uh, I'll do mine and we can see if where the Venn diagram is.
1: Sure. I feel like, um, I don't know, it's been an interesting progression. I feel like I'm getting a bunch of these kinds of questions more frequently these days um, both related to training and some of the like diet nutrition sort of thing. And I suspect that some of it's coming from like some of the numbers that I've been putting up recently, but the impression that people seem to have is that I'm making like much more rapid progress than I have before, which is not, the, not the case. I just think that some of it is like maybe more attention getting or something. And people think I'm making faster progress than, than I really am. Um, and so, so I get a lot of these questions of what does my training look like? And really it's like, If I'm being honest, my overall training structure, my weekly training, what I do has changed minimally for like over a year and a half, maybe even more than that with like pretty trivial changes from week to week or or, or month to month, nothing really of of great significance and pretty similar with my diet, which is uh, another question we'll get to a little bit later, Uh, but it just seems to be getting people's attention. So overall, the training structure that I've used for, yeah, I think at least a year and a half going on two years now. Um, I changed from what I had done previously where I used to, you know, when I first was getting started, I would train to like three days a week and then four days a week, um, big lifts, like pretty much every session, full body, uh, training on the compound movements, pretty much every session. Now, what I've been doing for a while is I've been training typically six days a week, uh, with a bit of a different distribution of the training stimulus and, and heavy and light stuff throughout the week. So Monday, I typically do a full, like what people can refer to as an SBD day, a full you know squat bench and um, typically uh, a sumo or some other kind of supplemental deadlift movement at the end of that session, both Tuesday and Wednesday tend to be lighter sessions where I do some very light overhead pressing, uh, some of the accessory stuff, which was part of the question, lat pull downs, good mornings, single leg RDLs, maybe some split squats. If I can talk myself into doing them, (laughs) uh, cable rows, um, maybe even some pushups, things like that all in all, like the Tuesday and Wednesday sessions are very like low stress, low fatigue, but end up being kind of more of a full body, sort of like a, Pump thing, if you if you want if you want to call it that, it it keeps me moving, feeling good. Probably builds up some capacity in various areas and um, facilitates uh, probably some recovery from the stress of the full squat bench deadlift session on Monday. Thursday ends up being a deadlift and bench session. Usually my comp deadlift and uh, and a reverse grip bench as the main lifts with some more like lat pull down or various like upper back arm stuff, whatever the case is. Uh, Friday will be a, a squat variation and some overhead pressing again. Again, my overhead pressing is extremely light, literally like 135 pounds because I don't care about the press, but I'm just using it as a way to keep things moving in different ways and keep keep everything happy. And then Saturday is another light accessory session. I'll do RDLs. I'll do more of the similar type of, types of accessory type movements and then a bench exposure again, usually like pause bench for triples or something like that. So those six days, the heavy days tend to be Monday, Thursday, light days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, uh, Tuesday, w- uh, Wednesday, Saturday. And then um, the main kind of approach to the main competition movements involves working up to usually something like a he- like a heavy-ish single in the RPE seven to eight, maybe, maybe a nine range. And then I'll take off about 25% off the bar and do anywhere from uh, four to six sets of three to four reps. And so my overall uh, rep ranges on my main movements, really, I do not go above four and I have not in a very long time. Um, and then all the, on all the supplemental stuff, um, like lat pull downs and, and all that other kind of stuff, typically it's more like 10, 12, 15, something like that. Um, so that ends up being something that I've just kind of gravitated towards over time. It balances kind of the distribution of stress throughout the week. I seem to tolerate it really well. And I don't force any kind of progression really ever. I just uh, take what's there on any given day and just kind of ride the waves up and down over time as life stress, work stress, whatever, maybe things uh, bump down a little bit and then things uh, perk back up shortly after that. And then long-term things just seem to generally be gravitating upwards, but having that like emotional detachment from the weights on any given day has been super helpful and I've felt uh, something that I think we I've talked about before, like getting a sense of what your bottom end strength is, as like a more useful met- metric. Like, what's what's a decent like any day lift? Not like what am I on my best day? And I've felt that like oh, now if I go to you know train my deadlift or something, any day where I pull less than I don't know six sixty, <laughs> for example, is like uh, not too hot today. And then in that like maybe six sixty to six ninety range or something, I'm like okay, that's you know, a decent like average day at this point. And then anything above that, I'm like, oh, I'm like reasonably strong today. Um, And I felt that like floor kind of rise gradually over time with all the training, accumulation, all the exposure, all the practice with singles, doubles, triples, and really, again, nothing over four, um, I think has kind of uh, developed that. So that's just something that I've gravitated towards seems to work reasonably well for me. Absolutely. No guarantee it will work for anybody else listening to this, even though they're guaranteed to have some people try it. It comes with no guarantees. Your uh, mileage may vary, (laughs) as they say. Uh, But uh, since uh, we were getting hammered with these questions, I figured we'd just put it out there. There you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when people are asking it, it, the uh, assumption is that if I find out this top secret Baraki program, then I too will share in this trajectory. (laughs) And and, and I, I think what people should understand is that you're not taking any of the principles that we've designed like any of the templates or doing any of our coaching through and just like throwing them out the window. You're just taking them and tweaking them to your preferred schedule, your sort of adaptive capacity over time and preferences. So like for example, my current training looks a lot like the low fatigue templates henceforth like that that's <laughs> where they came from, right? And so if somebody was like looking to use that sort of approach, you could start there and take For example, the four day low, you know, low intercept fatigue or medium intercept fatigue and spread it out over six days. It would look pretty similar to what your training actually is. But I will say this look, man, if you're in your first year, two years of training, just take the last 10 minutes of your life and erase it. Neuralize yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not for you. And I, 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 and you know, I I liked when people are super stoked on training, they want to learn, they're just, they're, they're jazzed up. Um, but this is, that conversation is not for you. And I'm not trying to like say, oh, we got novices, intermediates, advanced, and like you can't use these, all the principles are the same. But the point is like, you can't possibly know at this point how to adjust your training because you haven't been training long enough. Uh, and, and further, there are some, I guess, developmental steps that you should be going through before you get to this point. I think in general, newer trainees can have a much closer proximity to failure. For example, they're going to need less training volume in general than more uh, advanced trainees or people who've been training for longer, and they're going to have less sort of experience to pull from to be like, this is enough for today. This isn't enough for today. And so uh, that has nothing to do with RPE, by the way. I think, newer trainees can rate that in a manner that is effective but as far as like setting up your own program or programming you know you don't think i don't i don't think that's in the cards in your first few years and i, I don't think you you necessarily should will you can you live a full and complete life if you do sure but but i think if you're looking to really uh you know get the most out of your training, it's probably going to be something that, uh, is pre made or otherwise like administered to you rather than you kind of setting it up yourself. It's just, a, it's just an experience thing and, and fund of knowledge thing. Um, even if you were like, went to school for this, uh, if you haven't been training that long, I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you create your own program, you know, without having like done it a lot for others coaching and experience it yourself?
1: Like it, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to do this for myself back within my first couple of years of training for, for sure.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So you're training six days a week. I did that in medical school. Like I was just, cause my sessions ended up being shorter, mm-hmm. right? Like one or two, one or two movements or one or two movements and then like a body weight kind of thing. Yep. Um, I actually did not like that frequency, even though the se- sessions were shorter. I mean, I'm doing four sessions uh, a week right now and there's usually four or five movements mm-hmm. um, and the sessions are longer, especially now with all the conditioning, So my total like training time per day is getting closer to two and a half to three hours, which is uh, a big chunk if you don't happen to work for yourself in the health and fitness industry. Yeah.
1: And you're (laughs) training for multiple goals, too, which kind of necessitates that amount of time if you're going to be working towards those different things.
0: Yeah. What is a recipe for like the longest training sessions ever? Like be fairly well trained, right? Uh, have multiple training goals and then also have like lots and lots of resources to like go training. And so here, here we are. Um, but yeah, I think if you're for people listening to this, they're like, all right, so I just listened to 12 minutes of these two dudes talking about programming program principles. What do it's like, all right. So my recommendation would be if you're curious on this low fatigue template, the ebook associated with it, like lays all this out, like, fairly clearly and then you can adjust that iteratively based on your feedback but again if you're in your first year or two of training i don't necessarily know that that should be any more than like a curiosity and maybe you explore that on a cerebral level rather than like i need this program it's like "Eh, you probably don't yeah cool (laughs) all right (laughs) as always (laughs) learn nothing from these podcasts no um all right question number two on the internet internet's gonna hate us this. I can I can feel it already. Are seed oils really bad for you? Are they killing testosterone or causing sunburn? Uh, just a brief thought on the last part. Have you been sunning your taint? <laughs> yeah,
1: I you, have. I, I can't say that I have.
0: Okay. Well, I've been told that if you'd have the vitamin D and the ultraviolet rays directly like directed at the perineum, then you get localized vitamin D generation and then that goes directly to the testicles which ultimately
1: increases testosterone i must have missed that physiology of uh, of how focal that vitamin d you know hotspot is <laughs> hotspot. but
0: but doesn't that sound plausible like don't isn't that don't you think that you could you you might read that on twitter somewhere like somebody would be like see this is the mechanism this is why you got to do it it's why you got to sun your yanni
1: yeah it sounds plausible if you don't know anything about the topic.
0: <laughs> it's just like, it's like, mecha- it's just that, that mechanistic masturbation thing that you, you share with me. That's what it is. Like people will make up, even, even if they're not made up mechanisms, they're, you know, known mechanisms, but it's like the mechanisms, one thing, but the clinical outcome and therefore clinical importance. So like what happens in the real world, you know, two patients, two individuals, that's the thing that matters more. And people will spend hours and hours debating mechanisms. And it's like, dude, we have clinical outcome studies. Like, where we look at what happens in the real world. And so while the mechanisms may be interesting, stimulating, let's look at the clinical data if we're trying to figure out what to actually do. So on this question, I'm just going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you get into this. But the very simple answer, are seed oils really bad for you? Uh, no, they are not. No, they are not. And you look at data set after data set after data set of actual humans consuming seed oil, and you see a reduced risk of, for example, cardiovascular disease. Uh, particularly if you're replacing things like saturated fat. Now, obviously, just if you're looking at cross sectional data, so just, you know, a snapshot in time of people and you look at seed oil, you know, versus uh, other sorts of fatty acids uh, intake, the results are less clear, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about advising people to eat more uh, seed oils, so to speak, or non unsaturated fats. And what happens? Because you got to, you're replacing the fat with something, right? That's the whole idea. And so in any case, I just find when people geek out on this, like seed oils are death, industrialized seed oils are going to kill you. It's like, cool. That is a fine hypothesis to have minus the fear mongering, but where the F is your data? Because every interventional data set that we have, where they take saturated fat and they replace it with seed oils, unsaturated fat, you see a decrease in cardiovascular risk metrics and, or if they follow them long enough, actual mortality which is, <laughs> that's what you're looking at, man. Uh, I'll link a few of those papers um, in the description. This latest one that I like is from Circulation in 2019. It's a meta-analysis of 30 studies uh, on incident cardiovascular disease and mortality with pl- seed oil replacement in the diet. So in any case, Austin, you we actually did a video on this, but I know you've like actually committed yourself to doing some more in-depth research on this. So yeah. what, what's your take on this and, question?
1: And, and to your earlier point, I mean, I think that what I, that that uh, tweet discussion that I shared with you is is worth just mentioning because this mechanistic topic is one that obviously gets get, gets me going. And so this guy named uh, Jonathan Jerry, his at Cracked Science on Twitter is his, uh, uh, his handle. He, he wrote, this was actually two days ago, he wrote, there's a fascinating phenomenon in the complementary and alternative medicine literature we would call mechanism masturbation, where the authors- Faced with the tiniest of positive signals in a small study, write paragraph after paragraph hypothesizing how mechanistically watermelon seeds might cure schizophrenia. It may interfere with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. One of its compounds binds to alpha receptors and the cell type could play a role in this cascade. Anyway, preliminary results from an N equals six study. More more studies are needed. <laughs> and this is, it, it's, it's kind of like a satirical take, but it's not actually that far from the reality of what we see from a lot of people who do kind of uh, just thrive on cranking out content based on these really tiny mechanistic sort of papers that uh, look at, you know, whether it's in vitro or some sort of cell signaling mechanism rather than like what actually happens to real humans with real outcomes that people care about. And we have been no strangers or we have not been shy about firing shots on this topic, but (laughs) literally like... Rhonda Patrick's entire Instagram page, you scroll through the whole thing and it's like 90% mechanistic masturbation of stuff that is not real humans with real outcomes that we care about. It's more of this either mechanistic stuff or observational stuff that is inappropriately turned into recommendations when you can't make recommendations based on uh, the observational thing. Like you showed me, I think you shared with me something that was posted about. Uh, DHA levels, or just a, t- a type of quote unquote fish oil. It's a, it's a, a but it's negatively, or it's inversely associated with risk of Alzheimer's disease or something like that. And using that as justification for, uh, supplementation. But there, there there, are tons of data sets, be it this relationship between DHA and Alzheimer's risk or vitamin D and literally anything, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, where it's like these two things correlate either directly or inversely. You can't use that to say, oh, well, as a result, you should supplement this thing to reduce that risk. That would be something you'd have to show separately.
0: It's a separate, yeah. It's like you can find something that's higher or lower and it's correlated with another thing. That happens all the time. Yeah, But then fixing that thing, intervening you have to show that the intervention actually not only corrects whatever the correlation was, but then also actually improves the clinical outcome, right? Because, because if I ask you, Dr. Austin do you give one shit what your vitamin D level is? And you're like, not, not really. I care more about the clinical outcomes associated with vitamin D status, right? Do I have normal bone mineral density? Are my kidneys working? Do I have normal, you know, muscle mass, muscle function, all these other sort of things. And if so, you're assuming that despite maybe a low serum vitamin D level, everything else, the compensatory redundant mechanisms that have been handed down through evolutionary history are doing their job and allowing you to, you know, survive and ultimately reproduce or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but that's the same thing with this, with this, uh, with this seed oil deal, right? It's like you, you have maybe some metrics that get worse in cross-sectional data with a high seed, uh, high, uh, a diet high in seed oil, as long as it's also high in like refined sugar, for example, or like, you know, other hot uh, uh, elements of highly processed foods. Like in general, that all goes together. But if you have people eating a lot of like olive oil or rapeseed oil or canola oil or whatever, you know, alongside like lean proteins, vegetables, fruits, or whatever, like those things don't happen. Thing one yeah, thing right. two. when you replace like a high a diet that's high in saturated fat with more olive oil or rapeseed oil or canola oil. It's not like their blood metrics like lipids, for example, or A1C or whatever blood pressure or whatever get worse. They get better. But even that you're like, okay, cool. But what about like cardiovascular disease? Like, do they have more heart attacks, less heart attacks, more strokes, less strokes? And it's like, huh, it'd be cool if somebody did like a longitudinal study, like Mm long-term on this. Oh, wait, they did. And people are better. (laughs) And and so at, at that point, the only logical thing to do is say my assumption that reducing seed oil intake improves health outcomes is flawed. I have to either adjust it, reject it, or otherwise modify, you know, do something um, to keep having this idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is just the latest in a long string of dietary villains that uh, a lot of diet subcultures choose to to attack. I mean, at one point it was, you know, was it whether it was sugar or fat or carbs or whatever, all the things that paleo people tend to villainize. And it's the current iteration is seed oils. And obviously our hope is that this will eventually pass. But the basic idea of these seed oils for people who have never heard even this term um it's a it's probably not a great term honestly, but it's many of the polyunsaturated fatty acid forces that you may have uh, uh, that you mentioned earlier to include things like canola oil, characterized by having a high content of a particular fatty acid called linoleic acid. Um, and these unsaturated fats, uh, the chemical structure of them contains double bonds, which makes them more fluid, bendier, and it results in these fats being liquid oils, as opposed to more saturated types that are more linear, packed together tightly, and tend to be, uh, tend to be more solid, uh, particularly at a particular temperature, like butter, for example. And so there are lots of potential mechanisms by which you could hypothesize, you could guess that, hey, maybe these unsaturated fats, because they uh, have these double bonds and they're more prone to oxidation and things like that, they could cause harm. And that's a testable hypothesis. So you could take people who are consuming high saturated fat diets and replace them with polyunsaturated or vice versa, and look not just at markers of some sort of fatty acid oxidation, but rather at what actually happens to things people care about. People cannot feel the level of oxidation that is happening in their in, in their fatty acid lipid membranes or something, even though people you know in this scene think they can, they think that you know this makes me feel bad or something, even though it's probably more of a nocebo <laughs> type thing when they are aware that they're consuming these things. Rather, things you can feel or experience are things like uh, cardiovascular, disease, heart attacks, strokes, and death, and and fatty liver disease, and and things like that, that can be much more problematic. And so when we actually look at uh, data in humans doing these dietary substitutions um, on those particular outcomes, we see really consistent evidence, not just Uh, from an intervention standpoint. We also see it from a mechanistic standpoint. We also see it from uh, epidemiologic standpoint. We have these, what we call multiple lines of converging evidence, all pointing generally in the same direction. Um, When you replace high intakes of animal-derived saturated fats with these unsaturated fat sources, like foods from uh, uh, seed oils or uh, uh, fish or plant sources, things like that, we see improvements in blood lipids, blood cholesterol levels. One way is that they upregulate, they improve the function of the LDL receptor. We see decreases in liver fat in patients who have fatty liver disease. Uh, we see decreases in cardiovascular risk um, and a number of other findings, again, quite consistently across broad ranges of uh, uh, data sets and study types. Um, and then even if you were to look at the actual mechanisms that are posited, for example, this idea that these polyunsaturated fats are much more prone to oxidation, it's like there, there there's data where they've manipulated linoleic acid intake by like over 500% in up or down in directions. And we don't really see changes in inflammatory markers. And they've done even radio tracer studies. And it's like humans only actually convert like 0.2% of their dietary linoleic acid to the supposed inflammatory baddies, like arachidonic acid, for example. I could go on, I mean, there, this has been beaten to death in other avenues um, in, in, by other people as well. So we could go on for for hours on this, but... When I hear people in typically like the lower carb type scene, for example, keto diet scene say that these, uh, these types of oils are very harmful based on these mechanistic things that I can throw out the window. When they say that I eliminated all of these foods from my diet and I got way healthier. My next question is, I don't actually doubt that, but the question is what were the food sources of this that you were actually consuming? Because unfortunately the reality is that many of these types of oils are used in junk food. And, and so no shit when people eliminate a bunch of junk food from their diets that they get better. These people are not typically getting their unsaturated fats. Uh, they're not typically, you know, their prior diet did not involve chugging half a bottle of canola oil. And that's why they were doing poorly. Although that would probably not be great on, on multiple, multiple fronts to include, your, you know, time on the toilet and things like that. But, but, um, the, 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 uh, uh, elimination of all of those food sources, it's changing a lot more things in your diet than just this single variable. And so isolating all the supposed harm to the single variable, particularly in the face of all this other evidence where when we manipulate this one variable, we see things improve. It doesn't make any sense. It's not justifiable conclusion. So um, ultimately, we do not have concerns with this. We don't necessarily go out and tell people you should drastically ramp up your intake if you don't want to. I don't like if I look at my daily diet, it's not like I'm consuming tons of this, but I'm not afraid of it either. I'm not going out of my way to avoid it or to replace it with high amounts of animal derived saturated fats like you know taking tons of butter or something like that instead that would be not the move that i would that would be dumb that would be (laughs) dumb to advise yeah i
0: i yes that and that's the important take home i agree it's like it's like a low carb bingo like if you're like an influencer or a a grifter in the low carb space like there's a handful of things you have to say and it should be a bingo it's like oh seed oils or death (laughs) uh the di- the lipid heart hypothesis is flawed, like yeah, <laughs> eat, yeah. eat more butter. And <laughs> you're like, gosh,
1: you get yeah. people. Like, so this is a, this is a real complicated, detailed topic for anybody who actually wants to get into the weeds on it. The, on our barbell medicine website, my article cholesterol part three in particular, um, is lengthy on this. It has a whole section dedicated to this particular topic, uh, section 10 for anybody who wants to follow that up and look into the actual data on this.
0: Yeah. I'll just say one thing about the testosterone thing. So one are seed oils reducing testosterone. No, but then also stop worrying about your testosterone. Just like <laughs> like yes there are indications to test your uh, to get your uh, testosterone levels checked and further manage that clinical hypogonadism. We've got articles on that videos on that. I feel like we've beaten that to death. But like this idea that you can manipulate your testosterone via a diet or over the dietary pattern change, or over the counter sort of supplement. And that's you're going to feel it or it's going to matter. That is BS. Uh, If you change your dietary pattern, you were previously an individual carrying too much body fat, and then you subsequently normalize that I could make a case for that improving your testosterone levels. But as far as like taking your testosterone levels from the low end of normal to the high, high end of normal on a particular reading, you're not going to notice that thing one and, and thing two, it doesn't matter. It's not like you're going to get more muscle mass, more strength, more libido, you know, whatever it, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. The, there are complex, uh, redundant homeostatic mechanisms that control how much testosterone you produce, how sensitive you are to that testosterone and its function. The body is very, very complex. So it, the the biggest thing to hurt your testosterone levels and subsequent gains is worrying about your testosterone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> literally <laughs> like just, uh, lo- lo- losing sleep, literally over your testosterone. <laughs> ser- seriously,
0: yeah. If, if you're worried about it, I can I can empathize, but I think that I would move you away from you know I need to get this measured, I need to replace this, I need to whatever, and start working on your dietary pattern, your programming, sleep, interpersonal relationships. T- total stress levels and, and ways to cope with, with the, the stresses of daily life, those would all be much, much more important than getting your testosterone levels checked, which are likely to be normal. And even if they're on the low end of normal, you're not going to notice any difference from replacing them and seed oils, okay. no effect on
1: this. And if they are on the lower end or frankly low in the setting of massive life stress, uh, sleep impairment, uh, alcohol use, uh, excess body fat, those are all the things that would be preferable to target before going on some sort of hormone replacement therapy anyway. And incidentally, those are all things that we recommend that people do, whether you get your testosterone levels checked or not, work on sleep, stress, reducing alcohol use, healthy body fat, body composition, all those things are things you should be doing regardless of what your blood, blood tests show, so.
0: Yeah, yep. All right. What are the typical intermediate lifter mistakes that you often see? Well, I'm just gonna stop you right there. I, I, I think the nomenclature... You know, novice, intermediate, advanced can be useful uh, with people who have a shared understanding of what that word actually means. You know, if you're talking about, oh, they've been training for this amount of time or these are the typical training characteristics of a person uh, in that in a particular group. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think that that is a shared language. Like, I, I think everybody knows when you're saying a beginner lifter, like in general, like that's probably in the first six months of their training career they, uh, um, you know, are new to this by definition. And then I think if you say advanced people, you know, kind of have this shared understanding that they've been training for a few years or more and have significant experience, but everything in between you're like, I don't know what intermediate means. Is that somebody at six months of like training age or 24 months of training age? Uh, you know, are they lifting twice a week, just meeting the physical activity guidelines, which is fine. Are they lifting four days a week and competing? It just and it doesn't tell you anything about their programming. It's just another label. And so if the label doesn't like clue you in on like who the person is from a training perspective, what they're doing, um, and ultimately help you make programming decisions. I just don't know like, what's the point of the label. Right. So the beginner thing I think can be useful for just describing like a person new to training and advanced can be useful for saying, you know, not new (laughs) to training, Mm -hmm. but, but I I don't think anything further than that real, you know, you can be, ordained from using those terms mm-hmm. uh for, for example a beginner and advanced person my training like paradigm is the same i want them to train all the major muscle groups multiple times per week through a large range of motion at an intensity that's fairly uncomfortable uh through using user preferred movements that they, they'll do right so that's none of that is different but the dose may be different um but that's going to be individualized anyway there's going to yeah. be there's some overlap mm-hmm. uh in any case all right. So what are the typical mistakes? We'll just answer this question. What are the typical mistakes that a person who is not new to training, but has not been training for long, long periods of time? Uh, what are the most common mistakes or typical mistakes? Uh, I mean, there's just, and, and I hate to say this because people are going to be like, you guys are like the two old dudes in the Muppets, like the, <laughs> <laughs> the guys in the balcony, you know, like they're all bad. It's like, I'm oh, trying to be negative, but I mean, there's just, there's, uh, this, this field and the the sort of advice given, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. And I can understand like where people get confused, particularly if they're just trying to get some sort of guidance relatively quickly because they don't, you know, this is not what they do for a living, for example. And they're just like, all right, well, what do I want to train today? Or like, how should I adjust my program? Um, so typical mistakes, big ones, I think it's actually kind of a holdover from maybe the beginner phase is like this sort of uh, misunderstanding of progressive overload and what it is. They're just like, I have to add weight to the bar every single week or every single time I train, or I have to do another rep or I have to reduce rest time because I have to force the adaptation. And I think it's, again, that just goes back to this misunderstanding of what progressive overload is. The whole point is that every time you train the total, the amount of, the amount of stress that you're imparting on yourself should be about the same. And so as your fitness adaptations get, you know, improve and grow larger, you're going to need either more weight, more reps, less rest time or whatever to kind of meet you where you're at. Subsequently, if your uh, fitness level on a given day is down because you didn't sleep, you know, haven't slept for a bunch for an extended period of time or you're super stressed or for whatever other reason, it's not there. If you don't adjust the training down to meet you where you're at, you're going to get a better or a worse response from that training so the biggest mistake that i see is that people are like no i have to add the five pounds it's like it doesn't matter dude (laughs) <laughs> I've had I've had full uh, this is this is true I've had full tra- I've had training blocks uh, that are successful go two different ways and and lead me to the same spot one training block I'm literally lifting the same weight every week over and over and over and over again it's getting a little easier but not easier enough that I want to like add a bunch of weight it's just like just like you said at the beginning this, it's good enough right I'm lifting the same amount of weight but then when it time's, comes time to go to a meet I'm super strong at the meet let's go I was basically doing enough to drive the adaptations that I wanted, but not too much to like cause a a disproportionate amount of fatigue. So I didn't have to add any weight over a five week block. I just, you know, kind of kept doing the same thing. And I've also had blocks where I kind of created this artificial momentum. I start like my single progression. It'd be like one at six on week one, one at six and a half or seven on week two, one at seven and a half or eight on week three and build and build. And the last week's, yeah, one at nine or something like that before I go to the meet. And so I've added weight to the bar every single time. Uh, just to kind of like mentally have some momentum built up and I go in the meet and I do fine. I've had it work both ways, but the, the point is adding the weight to the bar is not driving the adaptations. Being able to add weight to the bar is a result of the adaptations taking place. And so if I could just do one thing or impart one, like piece of knowledge for, uh, lifters, it's just that you don't have to add weight to the bar every single time, um, Unless you've gotten stronger, in which case you probably should. And if it's just a little stronger, it probably doesn't matter. If it's a lot stronger, you know, it it probably matters more.
1: Yeah, I think that my main mistake that I was going to mention, basically addresses a similar topic, although just coming at it from a different angle, it's this, it's this perception of like, wasting time that people have. Um, That they feel like they have a very finite amount of time to make progress, or they have to make the fastest progress possible, or that if they're not adding weight to the bar, that that the session is a waste of time, which is patently false, completely false. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier in my own training, like my accessory sessions where I'm doing this like light overhead pressing. I mean, I benched 455 a few weeks ago, and then three days a week, I'm overhead pressing literally 135 pounds for sets of three for like eight triples. And it's like useful work that I'm doing in that, in that session. Um, uh, So, so I think that this idea that um, I have, I have to do this as fast as possible, this like emphasis on like, quote unquote, efficiency and if I'm not adding weight or reps or something harder every single time, that I'm wasting time is something that I would challenge pretty heavily because I think it leads to people making a lot of foolish decisions in their training um, that ultimately sets them back. Whether from you know excessive fatigue, inappropriate stress, injury risk, uh, burnout, things like that, compared with where I feel like I am now, where I'm like doing a fair amount of training, things feel good. I care very little about the you know day to day or week to week fluctuations. And I am just as motivated now, like, you know, well over a decade into this without basically missing any more than like a week of training um, during that time as I was at the beginning. And that's something that not a lot of people can say uh, when they're when they're going through this. So I would echo your, you know, mistake just from this different angle of like viewing it as like, oh, I have such little time. I have to do this as fast as possible because it's not really not really the case. It's a process that you ultimately have less control over the rate of adaptation than you think. Of course, you can manipulate um, you know, your, your programming and recovery strategies and things like that. But um, I think I mentioned this in a comment in response to somebody in our group last week who was like frustrated at the rate of progress. And I was like, well, you could try this in your program, could try this, could try this. Or it may just be that getting stronger is a slower process than you want it to be. I mean, mm-hmm. relatable, like <laughs> we yeah, understand, yeah, yeah. we understand that. So, um, I think that's one of the, the biggest ones for sure.
0: Yep. Agreed. All right. Next question. Thoughts on possibilities of resistance training for patients with heart failure. All right. So just for the people listening, do you want to give like a definition, a generalized definition of heart failure?
1: Yeah, heart failure is a scary sounding term. It's one that I don't like using, even though it's the one that we ultimately have to use uh, because it sounds a lot worse um, to people who don't understand compared to what it is actually describing. Um, It is a giant category, very broad, heterogeneous, tons of different things fall under the category of heart failure. Ultimately, an impairment in the ability of the heart to effectively fill and or pump uh, blood to the body as it normally would. But it is not failure in that like, oh, my heart stopped beating or something. It just stopped working from like a cardiac. arrest or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of different kinds. There's a bunch of subtypes. There's like a million causes and we're discovering new ones all the time. It's something that I see and manage near daily. Um, I feel like in a, in a hospital setting and historically, it's something that, um, you know, no sane doctor would have previously recommended somebody with heart failure strength train. And, and part of the reason is this perception that, if you exert yourself in that way, it'll raise your blood pressure. If you raise your blood pressure, then your heart has to pump against that. And that's It's called afterload. If you raise the afterload with, um, you know, uh, an increase in your systemic blood pressure, then the heart that's already maybe having a hard time is going to completely crap out on you in that moment. And so, you know, over time, our understanding of heart failure has changed and evolved a ton. Um, You know, similar things like years back, it was like, well, you would never ever put a patient with heart failure on a medicine like a beta blocker, because that can like slow down how much the heart is pumping, it can, you know, potentially weaken a a bit of the squeeze or something like that. And again, that was an example of a mechanism, a hypothesis, they were like, well, beta blockers slow down heart rate or squeeze or whatever the case is, and that'd be worse for a heart that's not doing so great and then they tested that hypothesis and they put patients on these medicines and all of a sudden they started, you know, dying less and doing much better. And now like absolute first line, one of the first, most important medicines we put patients with heart failure on, uh, particularly of a certain subtype of heart failure are these exact medicines that based on those prior mechanisms, um, seemed like they would have made them worse, but actually make them better. And that was ultimately for reasons that we did not yet know at the time. And so I, I view this through a similar lens when it comes to strength training. Um, and, and I wrote about this for anybody who is in medicine. Medicine um, in our up-to-date article on strength training for health in adults, there's a subsection on heart failure where I basically describe how patients with chronic heart failure have substantial physical disability compared to those without um, in both aerobic and muscular kind of capacity. There are tons of changes that happen in the body, uh, both within the heart itself and generalized throughout the body due to neurohormonal effects and metabolic changes and blood flow changes and things like that. Ultimately, leading to what we've talked about before, anabolic resistance, um, skeletal muscle wasting in the most advanced stages of heart failure. And so fortunately, now there's more and more evidence rather than traditional like aerobic-based cardiac rehab, um, introducing strength training. Uh, there's been some pilot studies on this for uh, both, you know, all, both of the major subtypes of heart failure. And I cite those data in, in the up-to-date article as well for, for those who are interested. And so this is starting to become more well-recognized. So I think that Broadly speaking, obviously, you know there may be individual case-by-case exceptions, um, things like that. But broadly speaking, I think that this is a feasible exercise modality for patients with heart failure. I think it should be incorporated to improve quality of life, things like VO2 max from an, from an aerobic standpoint, strength, uh, 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 disability, things like that in these patients, alongside all of the medications that we have, uh, the growing number of medications that can like substantially improve uh, heart failure and reduce the risk of death in those patients. So combination of medications and uh, exercise management for this, uh, uh, situation is uh, feasible and uh, something that I would generally recommend broadly speaking. Obviously this is not medical advice for any one particular patient who's, who may be uh, dealing with, with heart failure, but uh, definitely a thing. And there are uh, growing, uh, uh, data sets and, and research on this topic.
0: Yeah. I'll actually link this paper, uh, that recently came out in 2021. Uh, this is in Heart Failure Review Journal, uh, September 2021. So it's called Resistance Training in Heart Failure Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So a few interesting things pointing out on out this paper. Uh, so one, resistance training is actually in the cardiac rehab guidelines like anyway. So just if you were like looking for like precedents, or you're like, nah, I don't feel comfortable reinventing the wheels. Like if you actually look at the cardiac rehab guidelines, resistance training is in there. And in any case, this is a systematic review of resistance training um, on individuals uh, with heart failure in, in cardiac rehab setting. And the findings were that the safety was if the same, if not actual better, better than aerobic training, like people were able to tolerate resistance training more frequently than aerobic training. Um, and there were no like adverse outcomes um in the resistance training arm they improve their strength the upper body and lower body they improve their vo2 max And they improve their functional capacity uh without any detrimental effect on left ventricular parameters, which is one of like the metrics used to like assess heart failure severity in addition to symptoms. So I'll link that paper um and the cardiac rehab guidelines in the description below if you're curious. Like if you're a clinician listening to this and deal with heart failure, like you know more about heart failure than I do, certainly, (laughs) and like how to manage it in the hospital. But I think, you know, if you're less familiar with the exercise from the exercise side and you're like, mm, okay. These guys said it on a podcast. Like, where do I go here? Here, go here. Uh, I will direct you there. And then I think that may, uh, uh, help change practice. And, and I think, you know, this is part like a bigger question and I'm sure your DMS are flooded just like mine are people were like, Hey, I've got this condition or a family member's got this condition or a client has this condition. I don't know anything about, can they lift? And it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the research says on lifting an Arnold Chiari type two malformation. <laughs> right, 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 Just because I don't think it exists, right? Yeah. But, but I will say that in general, if an individual is unable to tolerate exercise of any type, that is not compatible with living an independent life. And and so, and because that means that you can't elevate your blood pressure to do physical activity, you can't move yourself around in in your environment independently. You can, I mean, there are all these things that are part of like a normal life and requirements uh, that you have to live independently. And if you can't tolerate exercise, you probably can't do that. And so that may happen transiently with, you know, certain urgent or emergent conditions that need medical intervention. That may happen due to, you know, severe injury or other medical condition. Uh, but there are very few, you know, conditions that people live with independently and walking around in the world that prevent them from exercise, like that c- excludes them from exercise. And I, uh, that being said, I, yeah, I understand the risk aversion people have for like, wait, this person's got heart failure. Like, I don't know. It seems like it would be bad that yeah. exercise, particularly <laughs> resistance training. Uh, I, I understand that, but I also think that, If we're just saying that somebody can't exercise because of a theoretical risk, we probably need to couch that and like, well, how confident do we feel like this is a a real risk? And we see that, you see it all the time, surgical post-op recommendations, don't lift because your blood pressure is going to go up. If you have high blood pressure, it's like, yeah, but lifting actually reduces your resting blood pressure, so.
1: Anyway, like, yeah, it's like, I mean, and, and also always the consideration of like, compared to what, so they can't <laughs> exercise compared to, you know, the exercise is bad compared to just doing literally nothing. That seems pretty bad for most people, but anyway, uh, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, that's a wrap on episode 182's little Q&A with Dr. Austin Baraki uh, from questions that you guys submitted to his Instagram. Make sure you follow him, Austin underscore Barbell Medicine, and myself, Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine, for the next time uh, we do one of these Q&As. Next week, we'll have part two of our question and answer session uh from the users from the listeners and so we hope you tune into that uh before you go anywhere please leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance and health and fitness once again this is the barbell medicine podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine i'm your host dr jordan weigenbaum thanks to dr austin Baraki for joining me on this week's podcast and we'll see you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast see you